Good day, everyone. It's a beautiful day in the Psyche community. Welcome to Psyche Podcast. You are here with your podcast hosts, Dr. Zamika Simmons-Yan, Dr. Jackie Canning, and Dr. Heath and Patadia, where we will spill the tea on hot topics in psychiatry. That's right. Here on Psyche Podcast, you will get the 10-minute lowdown on what's steaming in the world of psychiatry and mental health. We ask you to listen to the episodes, rate us and review us. Better yet, share the Psyche Podcast with your friends, where we all can sip on the Psyche tea and maybe have a side of lemon. On today's episode, we will spill the tea on something that focuses on healthcare service delivery. That's right. Today, we have a special guest with us who will provide information on ROPA. That's R-O-P-A. This is also known as the recovery-oriented perspective and approach to behavioral health care. Some of you may not have heard of ROPA, but that's why we are going to spill the tea on this hot topic. So joining us today is Allison Carroll. I'm so excited because we get to pick her brain about ROPA. Allison Carroll is a licensed clinical social worker and has over 36 years of experience in the clinical field and in administration. She currently consults with People USA and was the former senior vice president of business development at the Mental Health Association of Westchester in New York. She's a proud current member and a past president of the New York Association of Psychiatric Rehabilitation Services Board. So welcome, Allison, and thank you for serving as our expert today. I am thrilled to be here, Mika. Thank you. Yes. Well, I know that I am ready to sip the tea you are about to spill, so I'm going to let Jackie and Heath kick us off with some questions. Absolutely. I am so excited for this interview and I I can't wait to learn more about it. So can you give us a little bit of a a brief or a top level description of what ROPA means and what are the basic principles? I certainly can. I'm actually laughing at Amika talking about spilling the tea because when I was being trained to this, we referred to it as drinking the Kool-Aid. And I have drank (laughs) that Kool-Aid. Once you believe in this, it's kind of hard to, to turn back. But First and foremost, you need to believe in recovery, that people with mental health diagnoses can and do recover. And you need to believe that people should be invested in helping individuals move, the movement versus maintenance. Now, so for me, that's the crux and different from what I think we used to do in the field. But SAMHSA defines it nicely with um, guiding principles of recovery. So first and foremost, person-driven you know, the individual is the one who is driving the treatment. And even if as professionals we don't agree, we have to look at what that means and, and try to engage that person. But there are many paths to recovery, and it's not always linear, but it should be holistic. And that's something we've really not done a good job in this field particularly, but even in the medical model, we've tended to focus on the piece that's in front of our eyes. So in mental health, we would focus on that and ignore the substance use piece. And the medical piece would ignore the mental health piece. So we need to look at everything, including social determinants of health that impact a person. 
peer support, and that's one of the biggest pieces of this model that is different, and we'll address that in the next question. Um, but peers being defined as people who have lived experience of mental health and substance use conditions themselves and the value that they add. Um, it's, it's relational, the presence of the people, again, being especially peers, um, being able to relate to people in recovery, offer hope and support. Making sure that we are aware of culture and the piece that it plays in recovery, so important. Addressing trauma, trauma-informed care is important, whether it's medical field and behavioral health field, but understanding we don't want to re-traumatize people when they come in for help. Strengths and responsibility, recognizing the strengths of the individuals that we work with. You know, something as simple as when I was trained as a clinician, we would always start our assessments with, John is a 32-year-old, single, black male with schizophrenia, and it was all about the negative stuff. And now we, we tend to train people, start with their strengths. What got them there? That they're still surviving and coming to you for help. You know, we're still going to include the piece about their diagnosis and our impressions, but let's start with the strengths of people. And let's give them responsibility because when you take it away from people, they don't necessarily do that recovery piece they need to do. They still have to own their own recovery. And then, of course, it's just about respect. I don't care who you are and what your diagnosis is and what your history has been, but you're a human being and you deserve to be treated with respect and listened to. Because one of the first things that often we find with people when they're diagnosed is that they lose their credibility and people stop respecting them. And I've seen individuals go to emergency rooms and be sent home, oh, it's just your psychosis, when actually indeed it was a medical situation going on that they weren't believed. So those would be the basic tenets of a recovery-oriented approach. And I'd like to say that, gee, aren't we all, haven't we all been doing this, but not so much. So that is a change. And so since you said we've all not been doing this, how is it different than the, the, the status quo, how everyone else is doing it? Well, and I think this still goes on, but in behavioral health, we would often have these wonderful grand rounds and, and treatment planning um, meetings. And I remember sitting as a new social worker in one such meeting about one of the individuals I was working with, and they came up with all these wonderful goals. And I remember thinking, gosh, how do they know those are the goals? And the interesting thing was it was a huge table with doctors, nurses, clinicians, physical therapists, whoever else was involved, and the, the individual being treated was not present. So <laughs> the goals were theirs. The goals were what the treatment professionals thought were best. And again, they have all this knowledge and, and wonderful information, so they should be giving that, but the individual has to buy into it. And what would happen is often the goals were not what the individuals really wanted. And when they didn't succeed, they didn't follow through on these goals and they were labeled non-compliant. So it was this catch-22 of, gosh, I never wanted to work on that in the first place. And now I'm being told I'm not even compliant with my own treatment. It's, it's like if I decided, Amika, I think you would make a wonderful social worker and we're going to send you to social work school and you don't go because you already have a career with Atsuka and, and what you're doing. And then when I said, well, you're non-compliant, you know, you see, she's too ill to do this. So we haven't been doing this um, in the medical model. It's a, it's a different model as well. And, and I think often 
the individual, the patient, as they call it in the medical model, is not necessarily the center of treatment. You know, it's really the doctor knows best. And so we're trying to change that. I think that's a really great point to make in that, you know, if, if someone is non-compliant to the, the decisions that you made without that person, are they really not adherent or non-compliant? And I, I think that's just a really great point to, to resonate with all of us. So it, I know a lot of people like to rank things. This is better than that. Do you feel like this is better than the traditional approach? I don't think there I don't want to go in the direction of just saying one is better than the other. I don't know that anyone would argue that whether you're coming from a medical model, a behavioral health model, that treating people with respect, not re-traumatizing, um, being hopeful, believing in recovering, these are all good things. So I do believe that this has to be incorporated into whatever model you're using. But we're not trying to do away with any model or any way of of treating people. You know, this is not anti-medication. I've heard a lot of people think, oh, they don't believe in medication. Absolutely not. And what we believe in is what the individual wants. So if an individual chooses medication, we should be looking at listening to them and medicating them properly. If they choose not to be medicated, we have to look at other ways of helping someone. So I don't necessarily think it's better or worse. I think it's different. I think it should be incorporated, looked at, listened to, now, I think that the peer piece of this is the piece that maybe is the biggest challenge and new piece for many practitioners um, because it is having people who have that lived experience, those diagnoses that in the past we thought, oh, someone with schizophrenia can never work. And now not only are they working, but they're in the field and supporting someone else. So that's a new piece. Again, I've heard clinicians think, oh, is this going to mean that we're not going to have jobs in the future? It's not instead of, it's an addition to. It should be an array of choices that individuals have to choose what treatment works best for them. And for some, that's the old fashioned going to a therapist, getting medicated, doing whatever. For some, it's choosing self-help and choosing to work with peer specialists. And for some, it's both. Um, what we do know from the, the, uh, the data with peer support is that it has been shown to improve quality of life improve engagement and satisfaction with services and supports, improve whole health, including chronic conditions like diabetes. This is a key, it decreases hospitalization in inpatient days. We're all about saving money in this field and mm -hmm. it decreases that. And it reduces the overall cost of services. The, that's data that is in the studies and, and verified. So we know this works. So it should be in that repertoire of things that an individual has to choose from. So it sounds like in a nutshell, ROPA is this appropriate way to address trauma and behavioral health in general, believing and, and setting the atmosphere for, for this hope, respect and responsibility for, for caregivers and, and their clients. Absolutely. I don't think that it is instead of doing whether it's cognitive behavioral health or our dbt dialectable behavioral care it's not instead of any of the treatments that people are currently using it's it's really an additive it's really to do that with these pieces in mind so that the whole idea is you want to engage the person that you're working with and if a person feels heard and they feel respected and, and listens to, you're going to engage them and have a better chance of succeeding within some of those professional interventions that you're offering. 
You know, Alice, and I'm so glad that Heathen brought that up when we're thinking about that respect and responsibility. But as healthcare professionals, we know that our words have power. So how do we keep up with the the ever-changing language. I heard you say something about trauma. We don't want to re-traumatize. So how do we keep up with this changing language that can trigger a person on that recovery journey? I don't think you can necessarily always keep up because I think the language is changing daily as we speak. Um, I, I think that the more that you're aware of language, the more you're going to catch yourself and and I always, it became a game for me once I started becoming aware of language that I had previously used. Um, when I was trained, I thought nothing of calling people by their diagnosis. And, and I would say, you know, my borderlines that I'm working with, well, they're not borderlines, they're people who have a borderline personality disorder and they're not mine, they're not my pets. Um, so as you become more aware of the words and language that you've used, you start catching yourself and then you start catching others. And you start, when I read things, when I listen to things on TV, when I hear um, interviews and, and I start to cringe, oh my gosh, the language that we're still using. So I think that the more you're aware, the more you listen, the more you think about the language you use, the easier it's gonna be to change. I think some of that is watching webinars, listening to this podcast, you know, watching some of the webinars and things that are on PsyQ and other places, um, signing up when you sign up for different things, like whether it's PsyQ or other modalities, you start getting emails that start giving you information about these things that are available. Um, the most important one, I think, is asking people what works for them. What are the words that they are comfortable? Because the reality is I can tell you a bunch of different words that are preferred but then you're working with an individual and they are uncomfortable with those words and they have a preference. So I'll ask someone, what do you prefer to be called? You know, it's like my name is Allison, but if I prefer Allie and someone insists on calling me Allison, I'm going to kind of get insulted and feel like that person's not listening to me. So if in doubt, just ask the person, what are you comfortable with? As we said before, don't talk about it. My pet peeve is when we refer to people as their diagnoses. You know, people aren't schizophrenics and they aren't borderlines and they aren't bipolars. They're people diagnosed with. Put the person first, because otherwise the, the insinuation is if I'm in a room with five people with schizophrenia, oh, they're all the same. Once I hear they're schizophrenic, oh, I, I know they are. I got it. It's not the case because each person is different, unique, with different symptoms and different strengths and different histories and different culture. So. Definitely think about people as individuals. And, and again, that goes back to this whole theory behind recovery oriented practice that each person's individual knows themselves best and it can't be cookie cutter. Mm, I love that. Embracing the whole individual that is living with a mental health condition. So I know that we talked recently and you were referring to a glossary that's on PsychU that maybe can jumpstart those challenges that we might be having as healthcare providers. So I just wanted to, uh, to highlight that. I know Allison has worked tirelessly on providing just examples and she's even told me that there's more examples out there, but she was highlighting that when she pointed you back to PsychU. So check that out. It's also in the show notes. Important because 
um, many people in the field do want to use words that are not harmful or stigmatizing, but they're not sure what to replace the words they're currently using with. So sometimes people get stuck right with what do I say instead? So these glossaries, the one on you, and if you just Google, you know, behavioral health glossaries of words, you can understand what are some appropriate replacements that, you know, so again, instead of saying someone is a diagnosis, someone is diagnosed with, or um, again, all along, if you heard me say individuals, I try to use a word that's the common denominator. Patients is a medical model terminology and usually not used in outpatient, even though it's called outpatient um, practice, but peers and individuals in the field don't like the use of the word client, you know, all kinds of words. So I've resorted to using individuals. Um, Mental health is a big one. You, you don't hear me saying mental illness, although that's everywhere, because mental illness separates people. You know, you're mentally ill. The reality is there's a continuum of mental health. We're all in that continuum somewhere. And so let's put people all together. And, and instead of separating them and stigmatizing them, I talk about mental health conditions versus mental illness. So, Allison, would you tell us and all the listeners out there how to best incorporate that into their everyday practice? So, first of all, again, it's it's having the belief that everyone can recover and recovery is defined by the individual. So what you may think recovery looks like and what the family may think recovery looks like might not be what the individual is aiming for. So define with that person, help them to define what would recovery look like. And then in everyday practice, you want to support each person to have control over their life. You want to see each person as an individual. You want to acknowledge people's differences, such as age, gender, culture, and different beliefs. You want to try to understand each individual's situation and experience because each person is different. Understand that mental health conditions can vary significantly from a person to person. Remember, each person's journey is unlikely to be that straight path that we talked about. It's not always linear. You want to be optimistic and support the person because you never know when something's going to click. And, and I've seen people after 10 years suddenly have a breakthrough and, and do well. And you want to help build independence. The worst thing we can do is make people dependent on us. And sometimes, especially newer workers, are so gung-ho and they do so much for people and they feel so good about themselves. And they leave that job and the person just tanks because they were so dependent on that individual. So I'm always thinking about it. part of the assessment process is what can that person do for themselves? And I'm careful not to do for them. Absolutely. I, I think it's really good that you brought up the independence portion too, and, and so that they don't tank if someone were to transition to something else. So that's wonderful. So Allison, so I know you referenced this already regarding ROPA and, you know, to the audience out there, could you highlight some of the resources that are available for ROPA if someone wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, ROPA in, in the context of their, uh, their care? Absolutely. Um, everything that I've talked about is really done in much more depth and detail in a few webinars that were recorded back in January, I guess, um, on PsyQ. One was a recovery-oriented perspective and approach to behavioral health care, part one, that is archived in PsyQ from January 12th. And um, that is actually included me and a peer specialist and the CEO of the New York Association of Psych Rehab, all from different perspectives, talking about what this means. 
Another one um, is the same one, recovery-oriented perspective and approach for your healthcare, a discussion among a peer and a clinical provider, part two. So that is, um, again, a peer and me talking about how this is implemented in everyday practice, a little bit more hands-on. Um, and then there was a podcast on recovery-oriented perspective and approach to behavioral health care, and that's where we talk about the glossary and really discuss that more in depth, and that is also archived from January 28th. So I hope that if you want more information, you go back to some of those archived webinars and podcasts and, and hear more. This is, this, this is just so exciting, Allison, and I know Many of our peer providers, including our trauma-informed care specialists, they are elated because this really, this approach centralizes that individual engagement and service. So it sounds like it's a key component to making sure mental health care is delivered effectively. So Allison, you have spilled the tea for me, and this has definitely shifted my mindset, and I look forward to learning more. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there you have it. You've heard it for yourself right here on the PsychQ podcast. But you don't have to stop here. Definitely check out our show notes for the links to more resources on today's discussion on PsychQ.org. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more hot topics right here on our podcast, please rate and review us. And also please subscribe so you can always get the new episode whenever it drops. Check out our other social media platforms as well, like Twitter and YouTube. So until next time, thank you for listening, everyone, and have a great day.